Thank you, Andy. Am I on? I'm on here. Am I on there? Okay. Well, I appreciate Pastor Dave uh, building a foundation last week on what marriage is, and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to speak with you this morning about divorce in the Old Testament. I think it's important to say on the front side that if you like this sermon this morning, then I wrote it. If you do not like this sermon, then Pastor David wrote it in its entirety. (laughs) We, uh, you know, in, in preparing for this, we have read more articles, more books, we have searched the scriptures. Uh, this is an exhaustive topic, and I hope you understand that. We have tried to, to boil it down to the nuts and bolts, principles and essentials. And I hope, I hope you're finding that it's helpful for you. It, it really is a lot of information to consume, and I, I hope we're able to distill it down to its most important points here. But we want to understand, particularly this morning, as the Old Testament relates to the topic, because we want to have a consistent theology of divorce and remarriage through the whole Scriptures. We don't want to just land in the New Testament and take a verse out of its context. We want to understand the principles from the Old Testament carried forward to the New Testament. And a lot of people uh, kind of have a marcionic view of the Old Testament, and they think, well, gosh, God was an ogre in the Old Testament. God is the God of love in the New Testament. You know, beloved, that's not the case. The Old Testament law existed for the protection of people uh, in these areas. And so as we search the scriptures uh, this morning together, I want us to see that. Uh, It is important to say also that as we read a lot of statistics and stuff, you all know this, the church is not a whole lot different, statistically speaking, than the world with regard to divorce and remarriage. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but it should ask, cause us to ask a question as to in what way are we different than the world? In, in, excuse me. In what way does, do the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures influence our practices? Are we different? Are we different because we know God? And I've been thinking about this. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8. You don't have to turn there. I will read it. It just says, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. This is Moses speaking to the nation right before they're going in to take the land. He says, so keep and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? In what way are we different Well, God's people are called to be different than the rest of the world in light of living in obedience to the revealed Word of God. That's how they're different. That's how they're different. And the nations or unbelievers in our case, they're going to look at us and they're going to see that we hold to a different standard. That we hold to obedience in the Word of God as vital and important. So we have the Scriptures, beloved, 
We have the Scriptures, and it should make us different. And the nations look at us, and they say, wow, these people have the Word of God. They have the Word of God. And it's, it's not just that, it's that the Word of God is righteous in its judgments. It's righteous in its judgments. So when we look at the Old Testament and we read the law, the principles there are righteous ones that God has put in place, not only for the protection of marriage, but for the protection of both parties in the marriage. God is deeply concerned about the subject of marriage. It's vital to Him. It's important to Him. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Before I do that, I want to say, I want to talk to you for just a moment about the nature of biblical covenants. I don't want to go off the deep end on this topic, but it's important for us to say this because in all of the reading that's out there, in all of the literature, it really boils down to this fundamental issue of whether or not there's two equal parties entering into a covenant together with God as the witness or if God himself is involved in the covenant. That is the bottom line with the subject of divorce and remarriage. Those who hold to the issue of the fact that marriage is never severed and you're always married into eternity uh, because God is a part of the covenant have a sacramental wrong view of marriage. We would understand that uh, there's four parts to a biblical covenant. You need to understand this. Okay? There, there are the parties of the covenant. That is the people that, that make the covenant commitments to parties. There are the conditions of the covenant that one person will do this and the other person will do this, and they're making a covenant together to uphold both sides of that pact. There is the results of the covenant, either blessings for obedience or cursings for disobedience, that sort of thing. And there's the security of the covenant. That is, who's going to uphold it and make sure that, it, that it is, the commitments are kept. Okay? There are two types of covenants in the Old Testament. There's two types of covenants, period. One is an unconditional covenant, which means that there is a greater party to the covenant. Uh, So what I mean by that is, for instance, um, covenants between God and man. So you think of the Abrahamic covenant. You think of the Davidic covenant. Pastor David told you where those were located in your Old Testament. How many of you remember? Genesis. Speak to me. Genesis 12. Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Where's the, where's the Davidic covenant? 2 Samuel 7, okay? Um, God is, another word we use is unilateral. We, don't, we talk about these being unconditional, which means there's a, there's a greater party involved in the covenant. He speaks to the person and he says, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm entering into a covenant with you. It's an eternal covenant. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you all these things. And whether or not you obey doesn't matter because I'm just going to do this. Uh, That's what God has done. And when you look at the Old Testament, there's a quick hurry, by the way. That's why Genesis 1 is there because we see who the greater party in the covenant is. It's the God who created the entire universe Uh, And then you fast forward over to Genesis 12, and he's the one entering into a covenant with Abraham. And you fast forward over to Exodus 20, and he's the one entering into the covenant with the nation of Israel. This is the greater party of the covenant. It is God himself, and he is determined to keep his covenant. The second type of covenant is conditional. And I should say this, all human covenants are conditional because there is 
no one greater party who can guarantee it to the end, right? So human covenants are conditional, and in particular, marriage is a conditional covenant because the parties are spiritual equals. They enter into the covenant together. They both make the conditions of the covenant together, which means they both agree that they're going to accept uh, and fulfill the requirements of the covenant. They both agree to that. The results are uh, love, fulfillment, right? Blessing, companionship, offspring. That's, that's the results of the covenant. If there's disobedience, then the opposite. The security is the issue, and that is that when, we, when two people marry, they're making the covenant with each other, and God acts as a witness to the covenant. Not a party to it, a witness to it. He's the one that will uh, guarantee the security of it, if I can say it that way. So, let me just kind of summarize what an Old Testament marriage covenant looked like. We're talking Old Testament, and so here's the emphasis in the Old Testament. As you search the Scriptures, this is what you would find. The husband would promise to provide for the essential needs of the wife, and, and he would do nothing to seriously injure her, he would, uh, he would not injure her body. He would not stain her reputation. Uh, while the wife, on the other hand, promised to be physically pure and faithful to her husband and to do him no bodily harm, they both pledged to be faithful to one another, and they both pledged to be present with one another. Okay? In other words, as David said, companionship and sexual exclusivity. It was a covenant of companionship. So violations of the moral obligations of the covenant uh, by either party meant that the innocent party or the innocent victim was released from their obligations to the covenant. And, And this is important. Where divorce has occurred in the Old Testament, the right to remarry is assumed. Okay? We'll say that over and over again, but it's important for us to understand. Where there is legit divorce, the right to remarry is assumed. Okay? So how do the Old Testament writers view divorce and remarriage? Well, we're going to see four ways this morning. And the reason why we're going to do this is because we really want to see in the law, in the Old Testament, the, the wisdom and the compassion and the justice of God. God is a just and compassionate and merciful God. And at times, there are no other options. Where, where reconciliation is not possible, there are nowhere, there's nowhere else to go. And God understands that and makes provision for it. So, in the first case, uh, in some instances, divorce was regulated. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 24. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4 here. This is a very important passage for us to understand because this is the passage that will undergird what Pastor David speaks to next week in the Gospels. Jesus went to this passage when he was speaking about this issue. So Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. 
And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. I got to tell you, as I studied the Old Testament, this is one of the passages that absolutely stumped me for a long time. It stupefied me. I could not figure out in my own mind why she's defiled when he's the one that sent her away. I could not figure it out. It, it made no sense to me. And I, I, I've done so much searching, so much praying, so much reading, trying to get my arms around this, and I think I have an answer for you. I think I have an answer. I hope you will listen on this because uh, it informs the New Testament. Okay? So, here's the scenario. The first husband finds something indecent in the wife. It's not adultery. It's not fornication. Otherwise, she would have been stoned. He sends her away for a breach of wifely duties. In sending her away, she becomes another man's wife. She enters into a new marriage covenant with that man. And then that man decides he doesn't want her either. And so he sends her away. And the issue is she can't go back to the first husband. That's why this passage is here. And the reason why is what we're after this morning. Why can she not remarry her first husband? Why is she defiled to him? Well, look at the phrase, something indecent. Uh, it's in there in verse 1. Something indecent, uh, literally in the Hebrew, is erwat davar. means nothing to you, but you'll read it a lot in the literature, and it literally means the nakedness of a thing. It, he sent her away for the nakedness of a thing. We don't really know what that is, and so there's, there's very liberal positions on what that means, and there's very tight provisions on what that means. Uh, it's not related, I don't believe, to sexual sin or fornication, though. It's some offense, some breach. For some reason, he found his wife displeasing. Maybe she was disobedient. She burned the muffins. I don't know. And he says, you're out of here. Now, the Old Testament made provision that if if somehow the covenant companionship was broken or a wife uh, disrespected her husband, that legally he could divorce her. And what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about is the procedure of divorce. He had to give her a certificate of divorce when he sent her away. Now, uh, this is important. Uh, listen, if you get nothing else this morning, get this. There is a huge difference. The reason why she's defiled is because he had a legal right to send her away. He did not have a moral right to send her away. That makes sense? Legally, under the provisions of the law, she violated her covenant. He could send her away. In doing so, he had to give her a certificate, but morally, he had no grounds to do so. There was no break of the covenant of companionship. She did not desert the marriage, and there was no sexual infidelity, so there was no violation of the one flesh relationship that way. The issue is 
that he has found something indecent that falls under a category of the law, but it's not morally right for him to do that. Okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build on this. Uh, she's not, by the way, the, the wife can't remarry the first husband, um, not because she's defiled by the divorce, but because she's defiled by the next marriage. By entering into a new covenant with another man, she has severed the old covenant. Does that make sense? By her being in a new marriage, and having relations in the new marriage, she has been forced, if you will, to leave her first husband and, and join to another man. When he sent her away, that's what happened. So, so here's the reason why she's defiled. Because they were still obligated to be in a married state and to be in covenant with each other, so she had no right to be in a covenant with another man. Make sense? The, the Erwat Devar was not a reason for her to be sent away. So the issue falls to the husband. He sent her away for an immoral reason. He did not have moral grounds to do that. And in sending her away, and by her marrying, she is now defiled to him. And notice that the law says that she's defiled to him. She's not defiled to all men forever. She's defiled to her first husband. That's the point of the passage. He can't take her back. And so this is for her protection so that a woman would not be passed back and forth like a piece of chattel so that the guy could not just send his wife away for any old reason. And in doing so, uh, the husband forces her in a sense, to commit these things. And, and the law says that he can't take her back then. So think long and hard before you send your wife away. That's the point. Think long and hard before you send her away because you can never take her back again. Now, we know this divorce was sinful because even if the second husband dies, which would normally break a marriage covenant, she still can't go back to the first husband. You see that? She's still defiled to him, even if there's a death involved with the second husband. So it's sinful. Let me, let me just say the three-step process of divorce in the Old Testament, um, it's not instituted here, it's only regulated here. Uh, Moses was not commanding divorce. Somewhere along the way from the beginning of Genesis over to here, divorce came into practice. And Moses was simply trying to put a stop to the random uh, dismissal of wives that was occurring among the culture. And so he's, try- he's elevating Israel's standard here. You cannot do this to your wives. And so here's the process of divorce. The bill's been written. It gets served to the wife. The wife is sent away from the home. The two are now legally divorced or separated. Okay? It is a legal divorce. And, and notice that she becomes another man's wife. Do you see that in 24.2? She becomes another man's wife. And then down in verse 3, 
uh, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife. In verse 4, to take him to be his wife. Uh, The issue is she has left the home. The divorce is final. It's severed. It's legal. And she is actually now recognized as the other man's wife. I think that's important for us to understand because this, again, this this, uh, sacramental view of marriage, that marriage, uh, they're always married in the eyes of God. That is hurtful and it's sinful to say such things to people. Uh, When a divorce happens, it's over. A divorce means the marriage is over, whether it was moral or not. So what do we learn from this passage? Uh, Let me try to just boil it down, summarize it for you here. Divorce was tolerated and regulated by God and His law under certain circumstances. Uh, Something indecent means that legally he could divorce his wife for some unseemly breach of wifely duty. Uh, and, and I will say, it's a lot like no-fault divorces today. That's what no-fault divorces are today. You can divorce legally, but you, you don't have grounds, maybe morally, to do so. In the old days, you had to hire a private detective to prove immorality or to prove some uns, unseemly thing like that. But now we can just throw in the towel whenever we like. We say we have irreconcilable differences. And so we're out. We pull the ripcord. It's the first place we go instead of the last place we go. And I don't think that's biblical. Legally, he could divorce her. Morally, he could not divorce his wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, which violates the one flesh relationship or desertion which violates the covenant of companionship. Morally, he could not. Divorce required official declaration and documentation, just like marriage required it. So marriage was legally permitted for women who had, remarriage, I should say, was legally permitted for women who had a certificate. They could remarry without fault. No return to the first marriage was allowed if remarriage had taken place because the old marriage and the spouse was considered to be dead to them. The old covenant, the old marriage, everything dead. That's why death releases them as well because when when the divorce occurs, now the spouse is dead to them. They are not still married in God's eyes. So we said no marriage is, is uh, no, no remarriage to the first husband is allowed. Uh, one author said, what God has put asunder, let no man join together. Kind of a little reversal of the marriage commitment there. They are not still married in God's eyes. She becomes another man's wife. And let me just say that the sin in Deuteronomy 24 is the husband's. It's the husband's. He, has, he is an immoral man who has sent his wife away for some reason when he did not have moral grounds. This passage is for the protection of the wife. It's to forestall hasty action on the part of the husband. As I said, in treating her like chattel, she's not to be passed back and forth. He's not to dismiss her without giving her the ability to remarry. That would be a death sentence in the Hebrew culture. It's, it's for her protection. 
It's for her protection. So the law of God is just in this case. It's not commanding divorce. It's simply saying it exists as an institution, and here's kind of the grounds of why, why you can enter into it. Uh, one author said this, and I, I think it's good. There is no moral right for the husband to divorce his wife, only a legal prote- provision for divorce in order to protect the interests of the wife. That's why it's here in our Old Testament. Okay? So, in some instances, divorce was regulated. Let me move on. Second way the Old Testament writers handled it, in some instances, it was required. It was actually required. Look at Genesis 21. And I'm going to take you back to the story where Abraham divorces Hagar. And we'll just pick it up in verse 8. It says, The child grew and was weaned. Uh, that is Ishmael, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that, I'm sorry, that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. That's Ishmael. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham arose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar. Putting them on her shoulder, he gave her to the boy, and, and gave her to the boy, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. So Sarah sees Ishmael, the son of Hagar, mocking, or the margin note says playing. Uh, The idea is that she feels threatened by him. She looks at this kid and she says, my son is supposed to be the heir, not this one. And so she feels threatened and so she demands that Abraham send her and her son away. Abraham, it says, is distressed about it. You see that? But God tells him, to listen to Sarah, his wife, and send them away. And God, in that, promises that he will take care of Ishmael and Hagar. What this means, reading uh, the text for face value, is that God is requiring Abraham to send away or to divorce Hagar. He is to divorce her, to break his marital covenant with her. And the language is, is clear. The, see the verb uh, drive out in verse 10 and send away in verse 14? Uh, that means that this is a permanent divorce. It's not a temporary separation. God is requiring that Abraham divorce the Egyptian woman, Hagar. And Abraham's problem here is, is plain. The legal codes of his day, Nuzi and Hammurabi, uh, forbade specifically the sending away of a handmaiden's son if the rightful natural heir had been born. Abraham is really distressed about this. He is bothered about this. So Sarah's request offended social law. It offended Abraham's sensibilities, uh, Abraham's love for his son. Uh, the guy is just in turmoil over this. Uh, but God says, I overrule um, Isaac is to be the heir to the covenant, not Ishmael. Send them away. 
In Genesis 17, 20, God said he would bless Ishmael greatly. Uh, Ishmael was to become the father of 12 princes. He would become a great nation, but Isaac was to be the heir of God's eternal covenant with Abraham. Genesis 17, 19. So, in this situation, we could say it's the lesser of two evils. Uh, divorce was bad, but having an Egyptian-born heir would have been outside the will of God in this case and worse. So, lesser of two evils. So, you ask, well, is God violating his own standard here? Well, the answer is no. Uh, see, God promised Abraham an heir from his own loins. Uh, Sarah brought this whole situation on, on herself when she disbelieved God, right? Genesis 15, God made a covenant promise of an heir. Then in Genesis 16, Sarai turns around and gives her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham. If she would have only believed, and if Abraham would have only trusted God and waited for the promised son, uh, Sarai would have had the child promised to her, and no divorce would have had to take place between Hagar and Abraham. God is not the bad guy in this situation. The blame for the divorce is not God's, but he did require it of Abraham. Why? For the sake of the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant and to fulfill his word which he promised to Abraham, that Abraham's natural-born heir would be the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. It is interesting, in this case, the, the unconditional Abrahamic covenant took place over the conditional marriage covenant between Hagar and Abram. Unconditional supersedes the conditional. Second place that's required in the Old Testament, look at Ezra 9 and 10. I can't read the whole passage here for you. I'll just make some references along the way. There is no doubt about it that Israel's intermarriage with foreign women is what led to their downfall in the Old Testament, right? How many of you would dispute that? I don't think any of you. (laughs) Uh, This is because it led to the worship of foreign gods, right? Solomon's evaluation in particular points to this atrocity. If you look at 1 Kings 11, 1-11, it describes the horrific intermarriage of Solomon and how that opened the floodgates for all these foreign pagan idol worshipers to get into the community of Israel. It ultimately led to the deterioration of the nation, its destruction under the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Uh, Seventy years after the Babylonian captivity, they're back in the land and they're rebuilding the temple and Ezra shows up 50 years after they've rebuilt the temple. Uh, look at Ezra 9, 1 to 4. And so here's the situation. Uh, now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, this is Ezra speaking, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. According to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. But they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and, their, and for their sons so that the holy race has been intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. 
When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard, ouch, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. So he gets back. Uh, They've been in the land 50 years. They've rebuilt the temple. He gets back, and he gets this report that they're already intermarrying with the people of the land again. What was the whole reason for them just getting kicked off the land? Can you believe it? I mean, talk about not learning your lesson. Drop down to verses 10 to 15. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess it, to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance for your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you are our God have required us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left in an escaped remnant. As it is to this day, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Fifty years later, they are intermarrying. The nation is right back at it. They're marrying with pagans. They're going to let pagans back into the culture. They're jeopardizing the entire nation again. So Ezra goes berserk. I mean, Ezra just goes berserk. And he prays. And then he laments over in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. He laments. And everybody comes and laments with him and go, oh, I guess we blew it. Yeah, you blew it. Now what? Well, they agree that they're all going to uh, put away their foreign wives and their children. And so, divorce court. They, they have this big divorce court. Uh, they call people in and they investigate all the different cases. And so, uh, chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, you see that there? Ezra, the priest, selected men who were the heads of the father's household for each of their father's households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the month, of the tenth month, to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. Divorce court. Uh, So the priests divorce, verses 18 to 22. The Levites divorce, 23 to 24. Everybody else divorces 25 to 44. One big, giant mess to untangle. Once again, though, it's the lesser of two evils. It's the lesser of two evils. The people sinned in marrying these people. Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4, specifically told them, don't intermarry with the people of the land. Don't do it. And they did it. 
Had they learned nothing in 70 plus 50 years? Had they learned nothing? I mean, this is the source of their downfall from which they are now recovering. It's kind of like you shoot off your left foot with a gun, and then you turn around and play with guns and shoot off your right foot. I mean, that's really what's going on here. What were they thinking? Now, some people think Ezra was wrong here. You should know that. Some people say somehow he misinterpreted the law. But I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the nation was at a crossroads here. They were in grave danger. Uh, The preservation of the nation was at stake here. They could have gone either way. Uh, So he had to choose the lesser of two evils. Either make the people divorce the foreign wives and send the children away, uh, which they should have never married in the first place, or allow the nation to commit the same mistake that led to their previous downfall. And ultimately, if these marriages continue to proliferate, it would have threatened the entire existence of the Jewish community again. How do you think he chose? I think he chose wisely. I think he chose wisely. And I'm just going to say at the end of this point, you know, let's not blame God for our bad choices. You know, uh, there is no warrant or permission to ever marry an unbeliever. Ever. Don't do it. You will rue the day. And don't turn around and marry an unbeliever and then say, but it's not working out and so now I need to divorce. You compound the sin by doing that. Don't marry outside the faith. So, in both of these cases, divorce was the lesser of two evils. So sometimes it's regulated. Sometimes it's required. Some instances, it was really repugnant to God. Repugnant. Malachi chapter 2. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Verses 10 to 16. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each against his brothers so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord God has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit, and what did that one do while, while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then that you, to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. 
you know, how many times do we hear believers say, God hates divorce? They just, it just comes out of their mouth without even thinking about the context of this passage. Does God hate divorce? Yes, because there's always sin involved with divorce. But the context of this passage in particular is compelling because it's, it's contemporary with the time of Ezra. The passage we just looked at with Ezra 9 and 10. It's, it's the same time frame, and this passage is condemning any Jew who would divorce the wife of his youth in favor of marrying a younger, exotic, foreign, pagan idolater and breaking the covenant of the wife of his youth, verse 14. In other words, uh, it's almost like God is saying, are you kidding me? You're abandoning your Jewish wife who you're in covenant with to go after foreign pagan worshiping younger women. Really? Have you learned nothing? There is a textual issue, verses 15 and 16, I want to straighten out here. Uh, It's truncated in the Hebrew, and so the idea has been flowed out, and I think the NIV has the translation best here. I, I say that sparingly because I normally don't like the NIV translation as much, but... Uh, I think it helps us with verse 15 and 16 in particular. And it reads this way. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. I think that reads better, and that's why I was stumbling even over the New American Standard when I was trying to read it. God has made them one, one flesh relationship by covenant. And so for them to break faith, to break covenant and go after other women, younger and foreign and pagan worshipers, is doubly heinous right? It's heinous for two reasons. Uh, God hates divorce because of sin, for sure, Uh, but this verse is not saying that God hates all divorce. It's saying He hates divorce in this situation, and in this situation for two reasons in particular. Uh, The men were marrying pagan wives who are going to, again, undermine the worship of the nation and their covenant with God, and two, Uh, They're a little too cavalier in the whole thing of sending away and repudiating without cause the marriage covenants with their first wives. God is not happy in this situation. It is repugnant to Him. It is repugnant to Him. But I want you to notice something. Notice that He recognizes marriage as a covenant, right? Verse 14. And He considers divorce without moral grounds to be dealing treacherously with her, or, or the NIV says breaking faith. Um, without moral grounds, it's repugnant to God. Maybe legally proper. He may have done all the right things by giving her a certificate of divorce and sending her away, but it's morally offensive to God. So, what we cannot do is conclude from this passage that God is opposed to any and every single divorce. 
that would stretch the context of this passage well beyond what it says. The passage indicates that God is opposed to these divorces under the grounds with which they were being obtained. They were morally repugnant to him. It's a limited context, which actually, as I said, overlaps the context of Ezra intermarrying with the peoples of the lands. Marrying pagans is the problem and abandoning their older Jewish wives. It's a, it's a twofer on this one. It's a twofer. So what do we learn from that? Don't marry outside the faith and don't abandon uh, your vows that you made with your wife originally. You're in covenant with your first wife. Don't abandon her for whatever looks better down the road. That's what we learn from this passage. Don't marry outside the faith. And just a caution here too. Uh, Be careful about forming a theology out of one verse in the Old Testament. Be very cautious about doing that. Uh, Wrenching a verse from its context and saying, God hates divorce, is hurtful to people, is hurtful to them. And we don't want to hurt people intentionally. It, It has led to a lot of unnecessary pain in this area for people. Some instances, divorce and remarriage is regulated, it's required, it's repugnant, and finally, in some instances, it was actually representative of God's relationship with Israel. In this passage, uh, Jeremiah, I should have you turn there, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not the land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have, where have you not been violated? By the roads... You have sat down for them like an Arab in the desert, and you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Have you not just now called me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken and have done evil things, and you have had your way. Drop down uh, to verse 8. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. So this passage God pictures himself as divorcing the nation of Israel, right? The language is pretty plain. Verses 1 to 14 are clearly a reference to Deuteronomy 24. Uh, Verses 6 to 7 describe clearly Israel's adultery. And Judah's, her sisters, both have committed spiritual adultery with pagan idols. And in verse 8 we read, I saw... For all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. God divorced the nation of Israel. And we should bear in mind that God married one nation. They split. 
Uh, now they're sisters, uh, so the analogy breaks down a little bit, but Israel was God's wife, uh, if you will. God entered into a covenant with her. He promised her things, and then the nation split because God was preserving the line of David. Now, what I'm after here, knowing what we know about Deuteronomy 24, what is this picture communicating to us? And that is that God was morally justified to divorce Israel because of her adultery. And He did so legally. Note that He's utilizing a recognized option of divorce. He can do whatever He wants. He's God, but He's he's using a cultural norm here. He's giving her a writ of divorce, and He's sending her away. And He did that when He kicked her off the land, right? The question is, can God take Israel back to Himself? Can He take her back? If this is like Deuteronomy 24, then you would say no, but I think the answer is actually yes. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Even though she violated her covenant obligations of relational exclusivity with God, she did not technically enter into a new covenant with another God because there's only one God, right? There is only one God, the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. There is only one God. So, technically, it's not even possible for her to join into another covenant with another God. It's not even possible. So God can take her back. God's covenant with His bride was eternal. Therefore, He will take the nation back when Christ returns and establishes His kingdom. It is interesting, though, to think of God as a divorced person, isn't it? And I think about that for ministry purposes. Would we withhold fellowship from Him on the basis of His divorce? Would we refuse him ministry in the church because of his divorce? Would we treat God any differently? And I don't think any of you would answer in the affirmative on that. God is compassionate. He is merciful. His loving kindness extends forever. We should be like him. So, hopefully through this series we're going to develop a high view of marriage not a low view of divorce. It would, be, it would be my goal that you would understand that divorce, even in the Old Testament, should have been the nuclear option. It's, it's not the first place we go. Reconciliation, restoration, repentance, that's the first place we go. Forgiveness. We don't go to divorce right out of the chute. But I also hope it's becoming a dawning reality in your minds that there are times when it is appropriate to sever a marriage. There are times when it's appropriate. Uh, Sometimes it's the lesser of two evils. And we do, beloved, live in a sin-fallen world, do we not? All divorce involves sin, but not all divorce is sinful. Divorce in the Old Testament provided a just a wise, a compassionate way out of an ungodly union when it was necessary. And beloved, I I think that's the bottom line here. Sometimes it's necessary. 
And so we should be compassionate. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the picture that we have in the Old Testament of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Father, it would be our will that, that we as a people would be different than the culture that surrounds us in this area. Our Father, may we hold a high view of marriage and not just theologically, but Father, practically. Father, may people watch us and see how we treat our wives or treat our husbands. And may they know, our Father, that we know truth from that. Father, may we be a witness to those around us as to what God-honoring marriages should look like. Father, please glorify Yourself in us and through us to the world around. May Your Spirit grant us strength in those areas where we are struggling and in Father, in particular, for any marriages that may be here this morning that are struggling. Our Father, I pray they would apprehend the resources available to them, that Your Spirit would strengthen them in the inner man, that they would see how You value marriage and that they would not enter into divorce lightly. Father, may they seek the guidance of the leadership of the church. May they confess sin where it is present and may they Father, seek to restore and reconcile and forgive as a first option. Father, we pray you would glorify yourself in the weeks to come as we preach through this series. In Christ's name, amen.